I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You're listening to Alone, a love story. And I'm Michelle Parisi. Chapter 6, Fallout. Static. It's still the early days of the shock and awe. I'm numb inside. I'm electrified and not in a good way. I'm numb and electric all at once. I'm the way your finger feels when it gets stuck in an electrical socket, that buzzing tingle alongside the dull pain. I don't eat. I don't sleep. I can't do anything but walk around like a zombie, the kind that's being slowly eaten by a human, the human she loves most in the world. I drink alcohol. Lots of it. As soon as Bertie's asleep, I open the cabinet doors and take whatever there is and drink it straight up. I do this over and over, every night for two months until many bottles are drained. I smoke cigarette after cigarette in our backyard, staring out into the night. I've never been a smoker or a drinker, but suddenly, here I am, an old country song come to life, drinking and smoking my heartbreak away. Let's be clear, though. This isn't just heartbreak. For those of you who felt it, you know the word heartbreak doesn't even scratch the surface. You know, like I do, that there's no word that comes close to describing what happens to you in that moment when you first find out about betrayal. The way your mind and body are just a piece of paper the person you love has casually tossed a match onto. The way they stand there as you burn, staring dumbly while you turn into a heap of ashes. The way they blame you for being paper in the first place, when all along you should have known they were fire. Instead of taking the bus and the subway for an hour, I start driving our car downtown. It cuts my commute down to only 20 minutes. And this, my friends, is my first post-apocalyptic gift to myself. I drive each morning in a hungover, sleep-deprived daze. Sometimes when I park the car, I can't remember how I got there. Sometimes I cry the entire way. Sometimes, at a stoplight, I stare blankly at the human life going on around me. Everything I thought was real, wasn't. My head is messed up. My guts are rotted. Feels like it's collapsing under the weight of a woman I met fleetingly, once. A woman who knew my husband so much more than I ever realized or could have guessed. 
Now, she's like a thousand pound weight in my chest, squeezing every ounce of blood out of my heart like a tomato. Still, I go to work every day. I sit at my desk, but I don't actually do any work at first. I cry in front of my computer, even though I'm the boss. My coworkers stand around helplessly, offering me Kleenex. I make them cry. Men, women, young and old, the single ones and the coupled. They're all devastated to see me like this, to hear my grief. Sometimes I sleep in people's offices. Sometimes an endless parade of people come to my desk to see me, a receiving line of pained expressions. It's as if my husband has died, except he hasn't. I hate him and love him in such desperate, equal measure. All day and night, I think about them having sex. I can't get it out of my head. It's on a sick and torturous loop that makes me wince, that twists the inside of my empty stomach into knots, makes me bury my fingernails into the palms of my hand. I'm losing weight so fast that people notice after one week. By week two, I've lost almost 20 pounds, a thing I didn't even know was possible. One day, I run into a woman who works in the same department. She sits far enough away, so she hasn't heard the crying or seen the parade of concerned people. She stops me in the hallway and shouts enthusiastically, What are you doing lately? Whatever diet this is, I need to do it. I can't get a word in, and she continues. I don't care what it is, you have to tell me, because you look fantastic, like amazing. You're totally glowing. Every time I see you, you're skinnier and skinnier. So what is it? I have to know. Finally, she stops, and I say, uh, Well, it's the shock and grief diet. Just whiskey and cigarettes. I don't really recommend it. I feel awful when I see her face fall. She apologizes for intruding, but there's no way she could have known. I say it's okay a hundred different ways. And then right there in the hallway at work, I spill the whole story. Beginning a sustained period of oversharing that, yes, obviously, continues today. Fifty times a day I say, my husband had an affair, to anyone who even looks at me. Co-workers, the ladies at our daughter's daycare, other parents in the neighborhood, a homeless man, the pharmacist. I just say it, plainly like that. The same way I would say, I've had a cold for a few days. I can't stop telling people. I want them to know what's wrong with me. I want them to know this shell of a person used to be vibrant and real. And now I'm a ghost, and this is why, this is why my husband had an affair, you see? By the way, I really don't recommend the whiskey and cigarettes diet, no matter how effective it is. One of my colleagues is a lifesaver. She sits right beside me. A long time ago, the man she loved hurt her badly. 
and she hasn't been the same since when it comes to men. The husband's behavior only strengthens her conviction. If he could do this, then it's true that all men are selfish assholes. This breaks my heart. I don't think all men are assholes. People are assholes. Some people hide and lie, even to themselves, so much so that after a while it becomes easy to lie to others. I say this to her, but it sounds like I'm defending him. Meanwhile, she's a godsend at work, picking up all the tasks I'm not doing, leading the team for me, acting as my proxy in meetings, and taking care of things so I don't have to. I'm eternally, shamefully grateful. She tries to make me eat solid food, but I just can't. So each day, she buys me one of those giant smoothies that have protein and fruit in them. It takes me all day to finish one, but that juice basically saves my life. She saves my life. She frets and cares for me until I can function again. I feel blessed that the HR gods have given her to me by chance, sitting next to me when I need her most. I obsessively Google my husband's name and the name of the woman. I try to find out everything I can about her, but frustratingly, she's a digital ghost. I don't know what I'm trying to find, but I keep searching anyway. Nothing in my life makes any sense, and I want to understand it. I want it to come together in front of me, like a completed puzzle, so I can say, oh. So I spend hours trying to piece together the events leading up to the end of our marriage pinning down dates and times, using calendars. I hack into his phone to look at texts and emails. I don't know why I'm doing this now, after the bomb has dropped. And anyway, there's a very small trail to go on, but I triangulate events like a good journalist, writing them all into my notebook, trying to piece it all together, an expert in emotional forensics. Everyone, including my psychologist, begs me to stop this behavior. Even if you could get all the dates right, you will never have the whole picture, she says to me. It doesn't matter if he slept with her on December 23rd or not. You have to let this part go. I say to her, I know, I know. But inside, I think, it does matter. It does It matters if he slept with her on December 23rd. He was married on that day, and all the days, so it does matter. Why can't anyone understand that? Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. My aunt writes to me every other day. Every time I see her name in my inbox, I feel a tiny bit closer to reality. 
Her emails have the linguistic effect of the healthy juice my friend brings me. She writes short messages to say she's thinking of me, to say she understands the complexity of what I'm feeling, to remind me I'm strong. She's the only person who consistently checks in on me this way. She keeps it up for almost a year, but it's in these early days that it means the most. One day, my aunt tells me a story about a friend of hers. This friend caught her husband right in the act. He'd gone alone to her family's cottage, which was isolated on a small island. She decided to surprise him and meet him there a day earlier than planned. She rowed the boat from the shore to the island cottage and walked inside. There was her husband, completely naked with some woman, on their cottage bed. In the ensuing confusion and shouting and tears and everything else we can all imagine, my aunt's friend did the best thing I've ever heard. She took the mattress right out from under them, the mattress, and she hauled it right out the door, over her head and onto the rocks. Then she poured kerosene on it and lit it on fire. Right there, right then. They were on this small island, remember? So there was nothing to do but to stand there, all three of them, and watch as that mattress burned. I did nothing quite so dramatic. I didn't take him to court. We didn't have a custody battle. No bed on fire. Nothing. I just slowly spiraled down away from myself, deeper and deeper into grief and straight into the arms of that monster, loneliness. Scissors. Okay, sure, I didn't light a mattress on fire, but eventually I did find a way to burn myself. Grief hit me hard, and it's the kind of grief people aren't comfortable with. Everyone understands you if you're grieving the death of a loved one. We're patient with that sorrow. But grieving a marriage? No one has time for that. The grief of betrayal? Everyone expects you to just get over it. So your husband cheated on you. You have to let it go and just move on. Let it go and move on. If only it was that easy. Instead, grief consumed me. I walked around with a bullet wound that never healed and bled another woman's blood. And I dealt with it in a way that still surprises me. I grieved the life I suddenly had abandoned and alone, the life I didn't ask for, the life I never wanted. And so I turned to men to fill the emptiness. I turned to strangers. I went out all the time, dancing, drinking, then going home with hot young guys I would never see again. I wanted it that way. I'd only ever been in long-term monogamous relationships. I never had or wanted a one-night stand. Sex was always tied to love for me. But love had made a fool of me 
love betrayed me. So I threw love into the trash and myself along with it. I sought out sex only. But I was lifeless with those guys. I felt nothing. It felt the same as washing dishes or slowly cutting out a difficult pattern with scissors. Blank mind, concentration on task, and absolutely zero human emotions. A flame might flicker sometimes, but only for a second, and then it was gone. There was nothing fulfilling about having one-night stands with strangers. It fulfilled the objective, sure, and sometimes it was amazing or surprisingly sweet in the moment. But my heart was always doing something else while it was happening. My brain was also gone. I would imagine I was just a blow-up doll or a corpse. I didn't look or act like one, but I was dead inside. Afterward, I'd think, that's it. That's the last one. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can wait until true love comes again. I can stop all this and try to heal. Maybe I could get into watching a TV show like a normal person. Maybe instead of going into bars to find temporary affection, I could wear yoga pants and binge-watch seasons of Scandal and eat ice cream or whatever it is people do alone at home. I'm resolved to start being present in my life again. So I write a list on a cue card. One, stop feeling sorry for myself. Two, Find comfort in something that isn't sex. There must be something, right? Three, stop wishing for things and people I can't have. Four, start taking care of myself. It didn't take. I carried that cue card around with me, but I didn't do any of those things. Instead, I kept meeting new guys and cutting out difficult patterns with scissors, feeling nothing. All of that nothing to dull the something that once was. Above my bed is a piece of art I bought when we first separated. I saw it in a coffee shop. They had all this art for sale on the walls, beautiful line drawings on blocks of wood. One was just a big pair of scissors, and it was called Because of Love. I bought it and hung it over my bed. You know, of all the men that have passed through this bedroom, no one's ever said anything about those scissors. Until, of course, the man with the white shirt. One day, soon after we meet, he's lying there looking at it, his dark eyes heavy with the afternoon. So I ask him what he thinks it means, these scissors called because of love. The man with the white shirt doesn't hesitate. He says, the scissors are so you can cut away things left behind to make room for love. My heart burns bright white heat for him.
Why I'm telling you this. The ex-husband lets me know it'll be my fault when Bertie finds out he had an affair, because I told our family and friends. But what was I going to do? Lie about it? A fact is a fact. When Bertie finds out, it'll be because there's something to find out. Maybe you think it's wrong for me to talk about it so openly, that sharing this story is selfish and indulgent and will cause her harm. But I want to tell you this story, share these ugly truths alongside the beautiful ones, because life isn't one-dimensional. It's nuanced and subtle and full of contradictions. We surprise ourselves constantly, all of us. I want Bertie to know that. Her parents are fallible. Her parents have darkness and light. Her parents love her more than anything and continue to raise her together. We bought homes across the street from each other for her. We didn't go to court for her. She deserves to have her father in her life, and that's why I made those decisions. When Bertie finds out about his affair, it will be because he had one, not because I've told this story. Bertie will learn about the bad choices I've made, too, the way I dealt with the grief. But I'm not ashamed. I've considered it a lot what it means to tell you all this, what it is to talk about life, the messy and stupid as well as the beautiful, regret and redemption. The dark moments don't have to define us, but they do help shape who we are. And that's why I talk about them. You're listening to Alone, a love story. It's a CBC original podcast written by me, Michelle Parisi. The story editor is Veronica Simmons. Alone is mixed and produced by me and Veronica in our hometown of Toronto. Our theme music is by Yehenda. Explore more at cbc.ca slash alone. It's my digital scrapbook with art, videos, music, and the story behind the story I'm telling. Stick with me. I want to tell you about the kindness of strangers. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.